Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. Views expressed by participants are personal. Planning and transacting media used to be a straightforward process. You hired an agency and benefited from their collective buying power, vendor relationships, and knowledge. But in an age of data, disruption, and a slew of new platforms, many marketers are rethinking this formula. One option involves finding new and innovative ways of working closer with your agency partners. But in some cases, this might mean taking certain responsibilities in-house. These are some of the things that today's guest, Gai Wan, has been tasked with navigating. Gai is the Director of Account Management, Agency Operations, and Marketing Channel Strategy at Scotiabank, one of Canada's largest financial institutions. A Toronto native, storytelling was a big passion of hers growing up and was one that she fostered through drama and visual art while in high school. That passion would continue into her university studies where she was originally working towards a career in journalism, but an opportunity to break into advertising through a friend of a friend would change all of that. One of the OGs of the Canadian digital media space, Gaye jumped into agency life at a time when traditional media was still king and digital advertising was more of an afterthought. From trafficking ads to starting one of the first transparent agency trading desks in Canada, to working with the mother of all global advertisers, Procter & Gamble, Gai's career reads like an unofficial history of digital media planning and buying. We sit down with Gai Wan and chat about everything from being a French immersion student, growing up in a multi-generational home, and managing a portfolio of clients that ranged from the Toronto Zoo to Procter & Gamble. And for those looking to grow their careers, Gai also provides some sound and straightforward advice on how to position yourself for a promotion. Scotiabank is uh, one of the largest banks in Canada, one, one of the big five uh, FIs. My, my team is basically threefold. Uh, first off, I need to give a shout out to my team because they told me if I didn't, they'd be very upset at me. So uh, <laughs> I'm going to say, hey, team, how's it going? Thanks for being awesome. Um, so my team basically has three um, threefold. So there's the account management side. And think of that as um, the in-house creative agency, they need an account management team to help them uh, project management and also uh, manage the account with our in-house clients. So I just took that over recently, uh, super excited about it because my bread and butter when I was on the agency side uh, was, you know, account management and working with clients. So that's right up my uh, wheelhouse. And then we have the agency operations, which is working with our media agency and creative agency, so PhD and Rethink, on how we make sure that the relationship is working well. Uh, so maybe a little bit of relationship therapy, uh, as well as you know those operational things like invoicing and making sure that you know the retainers uh, being used. So th those really sexy things. Uh, and then the the third piece and the thing that's really near and dear to my heart is. Um, marketing channel strategy. And that's not my favorite child. So it's just that it's uh, <laughs> the thing that I've been doing for a longer time. It's marketing channel strategy, uh, which encompasses both paid media, which that's, you know, where I came from, as well as our, our owned channels like uh, merchandising. So in branch posters, digital screens, ABM screens, things that I, you know, I've always thought like, how cool would it be to see how the strategy works around that and 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 never really had any exposure to on the agency side but something that um, I'm getting a lot of exposure to on the client side so that's been really cool to to get involved with as well. I want to go back to the beginning where are you from? I was born in Toronto um, I haven't gone very far I'm still here I did a little bit of moving around uh, when I was younger so we moved to so I lived in downtown Toronto in um, in Little Chinatown, the east side of the city. Uh, and when I was about 12, my family moved to Richmond Hill, suburbia. Like we went from urban, you know, multi-generational home to a massive um, suburban house with, uh, with, you know, just houses upon houses next to it. And so it was a really interesting um, difference for me because uh, our, our my life was very changed a lot in that way. And it's funny now, 
I'm in my uh, late 30s. And this is actually the second address I've had in um, on, on the street that we live on because I grew up on the street and uh, I moved back here the second I got the opportunity to. So a year ago, we moved back to this to the street and I'm and I love it here. I love it. I'm an East End girl all the way. So wait a minute. The house that you're currently living in right now, it's safe to say that you probably passed by it multiple number of times growing up when you lived in that neighborhood previously. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And you know what's funny? When I when we when we came to look at this house, I looked across the street and I was like, there's this convenience store that has been there since before I moved, like before we left. So um, it was kind of funny. It, and I'm a little bit saddened now because because of the pandemic, uh, the convenience store closed. So uh, but it was it was kind of crazy. I was like, wow, that convenience store has been there a real long time because I haven't lived on this street for almost 20 years. Crazy. <laughs> Oh, damn. It just goes to show you how crazy things have been if a convenience store is going to get done in by the pandemic, because I think those were still essential services because they sold food. Yeah, they were totally open. The the um, the laundromat or sorry, the dry cleaner next door is still open, but I couldn't believe it. The sh- For those of you who lived in the east and live you know, around the Broadview area, um, the shop and bag, it was called. Uh, clothes a little <laughs> bit sad for me so but yeah it's been it's awesome moving back into the neighborhood and um, seeing how it's totally been revitalized from you know when I was a kid it was not the best area in town and now it's um, very much up and coming and lots of young families around here so um, I love it I, and I love I love being here and I love living in the city so tell us a little bit more about what life was like growing up in Toronto and suburbia in Toronto, I feel like it's really multicultural and, you know, there, there's tons of diversity. And as a kid, I, I, I grew up, I went to a French immersion school down here and, and I love it. And don't ask me to speak French with you because my French is not awesome. It's, okay. it's not, I, I'm technically uh, fluent in French, but uh, technically is the word here. Um, but yeah, I went to French immersion. And so I went to school with a lot of different kids. And I never knew that there was anything different, you know, about being um, a, the child of an immigrant family. And that was never a thing. And then I went to suburbia, and I hate to say it, but very few people looked like me. Um, and I really, I mean, I loved it there. And I had great friends. But the thing that it really stuck with me is that there were there weren't as many people who looked like me who didn't have as many diverse backgrounds. Like when I was growing up, you know, when I was young, living downtown Toronto, I had friends who had two dads who had a mom and a dad who weren't together. And, and that wasn't the case in suburbia. And I think that really stuck with me. It, it, I, I realized that um, there are people who are, you know, different and, and that was okay. But you know, in suburbia, it was a little bit, it was one of those things where it was a little bit different there. And I, um, that stuck with me and it was hard. Right. And I faced more discrimination in suburbia. I hate to say it. So I've always wanted to come back to the city and move back to the city. So really when I could, and when I, uh, when I moved out of my parents' house, I came back to the city. Question for you about French immersion. Did anyone else in your family speak French? Because and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding of French immersion is, is that all of your classes are in French, which means your homework is in French, which means unless someone was speaking French at home, you might have been on your own a little bit. So I'm going to tell you something else. So no, nobody in my family spoke French too. So that was one problem. But my mother is a teacher. So I had like no help from the one person who could help me <laughs> with all of my homework. Yeah, all of my homework is in French. And my mother and my mother is, you know, she's a wonderful teacher. She's a principal now. Um, but I just couldn't. I had no help at home. So I, it really taught me how to be uh, good at, at being, you know, doing things and getting them done on my own, uh, not being not getting any help. It's true. And this is the thing. My younger brother speaks French. He went to French immersion, too. And I could help him, but I never had any help on my own. So you were trailblazing. I was. Were I you the was oldest? A trailblazer. Were you the oldest in the family, or were the oldest uh, I child? Yeah, I, I am too. I am. I, we're the ones that either trailblaze or we make the mistakes, and then right. they learn from that for the other one. I know, I know. We've got the burns for that, don't we? 
It's so true. Why is it so much easier for our younger siblings? If he listens, if my brother listens to this, he's totally going to disagree and he's going to be like, that's not true. I had to blaze my own trail, but you know, uh, he had help along the way. He just didn't know it. (laughs) You mentioned that coming from an immigrant family, success was closely tied to education. How much emphasis did they put on that growing up? Oh gosh. Education was so, so important to my family and it was really the the means to 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 get to a place of life where you felt like you were successful um my my parents came to Canada for education and so for them for myself and my brother um it was really important that we got an education and actually you know we we were pushed to make sure that we got good grades but in the end, I think it really taught me how to how to really focus and make sure that I'm successful and be ambitious because, gosh, you've got to be at the top of your class. And that, that was the only thing you could do. That was the only acceptable um, outcome of any test, any exam, any project, you know, whatever you did. They didn't care what I did. You know, I didn't have to go to math or science or whatever but I had to do well in whatever I was doing. And so um, it was a huge driver of success. And it still is. It's taught me how to how to push for success and make things happen. So, you know, when I was a kid, I was very resentful of it. But now that I'm an adult, it, I feel like it's really taught me, um, you know, a good life skill. I wouldn't say I came from an immediate immigrant family, although I'm, I'm second generation Canadian on my mom's side of the family and third generation on my dad's side. But I definitely saw that through my grandparents and some of my aunts and my uncles. And let me ask you this question. I want to see if there are parallels between my family and your family. I found that even when I talked to my peers, if you had strong immigrant influences in your life, they basically mapped out your life this way and said, go to university and you have three choices, doctor, lawyer, or accountant. Did you hear that too growing up? I never got the doctor, lawyer, or accountant. I was very much allowed to, you know, figure out what I wanted to do. Um, but I also kind of wanted to be a lawyer. So I think they always just felt like, ah. you know what? She's probably going to be a lawyer. It'll be fine. And, you know, I ended up, I ended up okay. I've done okay, but uh, I am not the most successful person in my family. Actually, my brother is a doctor. Um, but he has his PhD. So he's one of those doctors. He's not a medical doctor. <laughs> a doctor of philosophy. Yeah. He's a, do- well, he, he works in, um, bio engineer, bio. Oh, geez. Okay. I can't even say, I don't even know. He's just very smart. And let me ask you what you, what he ended up, what do you think he ended up doing? What's he doing right now? Uh, is he in media? He's in advertising too. <laughs> It's awesome. He's in a totally different, he's, he's in, um, medical advertising for far, like pharmaceuticals, but it's, it's just funny because, um, he can't really get away from me. He works with people who know me. So, um, it's kind of funny. I, I, you know, he went and did his doctorate and, and I can't tell you how proud I am of him, but it's funny that he ended up in, in marketing too. So. It's funny. I laughed a little bit when you brought up the PhD and not because I find it funny, because it reminded me of uh, something one of my professors had said to me years ago in university, where you refer to them as doctor wherever. And one of them was finally like, look, just don't call me doctor. He's like, if I say it enough, people start to think I'm a medical doctor. Yeah, yeah, I know. He's not a he's not a medical doctor, but, you know, he is kind of related in the healthcare field. So sometimes we do talk to him about medical related things. We, he did his PhD in ocular biology. So sometimes we talk to him about our eyes. And we kind of ask, we ask him why he hasn't figured out how to um, get rid of all of our glasses yet, because everybody in our family <laughs> wears glasses. So, is like if you got that PhD, you got to solve this problem for the family, and don't say contacts. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly it. So no, but he's he's doing so well for himself, and I'm so happy that he's blazing his own trail in advertising. You refer to yourself as being an artsy kid uh, growing up. What? made you gravitate towards art? I mean, I was always kind of doodling and drawing, but the thing that I really loved was actually drama. And for those of you who know me, um, I'm one very dramatic. (laughs) I I, I have trouble hiding 
how I'm feeling. I'm like one of those where you're, you know, hard on your sleeves kind of people. Um, but I'm also uh, extremely bossy. I've been told I'm bossy. I accept the moniker and I, um, and, and that's why I was really good at uh, being a director in school. So I actually took really, I took to theater really very well. And um, it was because I knew how to tell people what to do and it was great. And they did it. And I was like, Hey, I can get people to do things and react to things and I can coach them on how to, you know, be and so um I really I really did well in theater and it's probably one of my regrets not doing some continuing to do that in my life um but you know I still try to like draw I paint and 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 I love it it's right now especially during COVID you know having that kind of artistic um outlet has been really helpful did you have any influences or anyone that you looked up to growing up yeah I was really lucky to have some extremely, um, extremely wonderful women in my life and in my family. Um, they're passionate, they're strong, they're hardworking. They've taught me, you know, my grandmother's taught me, I have two grandmothers, they're still living. Both of them got their uh, COVID vaccines this weekend. So I'm so excited about that because um, they're in their 80s. But uh, they taught me how to take care of a family and how to care about people and, and how to be um, a loving you know, individual and take care of people. And and then I had my mom who I talked about earlier. She's the principal at a high school now, which is pretty big. Like she's done really well for her career. Um, and she worked my whole life. Um, and that really had a huge impact on me and, and teaching me to uh, be ambitious and work hard. Um, she's the one that I really you know, have learned so much about um, balancing work and life and making sure that, you know, she was there for our family, although she didn't help me with my homework. Um, but, uh, you know, <laughs> being able to balance these two things, she was one of those role models that, you know, taught me how to, how to have that balance in my life. And then there's my aunts. There were five of us all together. My aunts are not that much older than I am. Like most people have aunts that are like, you know, really a lot older. I basically grew up with my aunts and we, I mentioned we lived in a multi-generational home and that's because we lived with my aunts and they all took, when I was little, they would dress me up like a little doll and parade me around. But when I got to be <laughs> like, you know, well, I was like the perfect, like they were, you know, 12 to like 20. And so some of them, they would just dress me up and parade me around and I, and, and it was terrible because I had this horrible hair. Um, that would stick straight anyways. Uh, and, and they would always try to fix it. But um, my aunts really, they they took care of me when I was young. And, and when I got older, we became almost like sisters. And they still kind of like sisters because I don't have any sisters. I, don't, I have a brother. And, and they really taught me how to have a voice because, gosh, when you've got five of us in a room, it was very loud. Um, and if you didn't learn how to talk over someone you were just quiet for your whole life and you would also never get to eat anything because you know people would just take all the good food and um you would really no food and no voice and so I had to learn real quick to eat everything that you could get your hands on as soon as you could and um you know how to have a strong assertive voice um you know I learned from my aunt so I, I'm grateful for that what was your very first job? Oh, gosh. I started working when I was young. I mean, I was probably around 13. My dad owned, uh, we'll call it a, a string of mature ladies clothing stores called Cottage Cove. I don't know if any of you guys remember that brand, um, but they had a location in Hillcrest Mall, which was uh, close to our home in Richmond Hill. And uh, I worked there for a couple of years. I remember wearing the best, and I mean by best, probably the ugliest sweaters ever. Like, you know, the sweaters with like the the lake scenes on them with the, you know, foliage everywhere. And I was 13 at the time. So they were like the most not cool things ever. But I, I worked there and um, I learned customer service working, you know, in a store where I had to help people figure out what to wear and tell them it looks good, even though it's not... <laughs> It's not cool. Um, and then and then when I turned 16, I got a job at Shoppers Drug Mart, which was across the hall 
from the Cottage Cove and I left the store and um, and then I had to wear another ugly uniform, <laughs> but at least it was not ugly sweaters. So yeah, I, uh, I worked at Shoppers for a while too after, after that. Apart from customer service, what else did you learn from your time working retail? I learned uh, how to count money and I also learned how to manage people. Um, I got put into a managerial supervisor role pretty quickly when I went to Shoppers. And by the time, so I was 16 when I started there. And by the time I was 18, um, you know, a year away from graduating high school, I was promoted to a cash supervisor and I had to like manage people. And that was really the first time I'd have ever had to manage people. But I think my, my theater directing uh, gigs in high school really helped with that because, you know, I was getting pretty good at telling people what to do and convincing them that it was a good idea to do it. So, um, you know, it, it really helped with that. It was a good life lesson there. Okay. So from there, you chose to attend the University of Western Ontario and you studied media, information, and techniculture. Do we call it the University of Western Ontario or do you call it Western University? Because it's not the same, it's not the same name as it was when you graduated. Oh, gosh, I don't even know that. University of Western Ontario is what I called it. UWO you, for short. You didn't even you didn't realize they changed their name? No. Oh, I'm serious. No Check it out. The reason I know about it was years ago, I want to say it happened about eight or nine years ago, and it happened on Twitter. It was all trending, and I'm like, oh, this is interesting. Why is a university trending? Because sometimes when you're trending on Twitter, it's for the wrong reasons. And it was about a name change, and it was just so many angry fourth-year students who were like, I'm a month and a half away from graduating, two months away from graduating, and they changed the name of the school on us? Because it happened like midway through a second semester, I believe it was. Oh, I had no idea. Okay, so full transparency, I've never been back for a homecoming, and probably people will be mad at me for doing that, but I'm not, I, I have not been back. I haven't even back, been back to London since I left my, my last year, so... So why the UWO and why study media, information, and technoculture? So I'm going to give you the, the reason I gave my parents first, and then I'll tell you the other one after, okay? <laughs> <laughs> so the, the, the reason why I went into the program was because I was really interested in culture and journalism and technology and how all of those things work together. Um, the program was very much journalistic and alternative like it was really um alternative -y. I don't know if the right that's the right word but I found that really cool and there was a lot of journalism classes it was a lot of like cultural and understand cultural anthropology classes and those kind of things so I was really into that kind of um understanding of culture and so that was the perfect course for me now, if you want the real reason I went into it uh, was because in my last year of high school, I really wanted to get amazing grades as, you know, we talked about before. I really wanted to get the highest grades I could. So I decided not to take math because math and I were not friends. <laughs> I so, concur with that. Yeah. Which is funny because, you know, in the media world, we do so much math. But, um, but we do practical math, though. Come on. Exactly. Yes, yes. Okay, true. We do practical math. But I was like, I don't like math and I can't do it. And I already didn't like science and I didn't get along either. So there was no science and there was no math in my final year. And I graduated high school with an 87 average overall, right? So for those of you who are keeping track, that's a magna, that's magna cum laude. I graduated pretty tall, you know, pretty high up there because I did all, and I got really high marks in English, drama, um, French, still had to take French, but I got really high marks in those classes that were very subjective. Um, and so... I, I I graduated with an 87 and I was like, yes, I got a really high, you know, I graduated with a really high grade. What the heck am I going to get into now? Because now everything needed math. So MIT, as we called it, Media, Media and Innovation and Technoculture is one of the only classes or one of the only, um, was one of the only majors that you could take that didn't have a math prerequisite, nor did I have to take any math in the classes. So um, it might have been a little short-sighted, but it turned out okay. I, I loved it. I did really well. 
Um, and I made amazing friends. I, I met some amazing people there. So it actually turned out okay. But um, it was definitely one of those things where I was like, mm, maybe it was a little short-sighted, but it turned out. And after graduation, you didn't jump right into, I guess we could say, the full-time professional working world with your degree in hand. You went back to Shoppers Drug Mart. Why did you choose to do that after graduation? Yeah, I uh, I mean, I don't know if it was a choice as much as it was a, I got nothing else to do. They're offering me a manager position. Let's go do that until I find something. And uh, for the first time in my life, I was not super ambitious. And I didn't find a job for three years. And actually, you know, I, I didn't know what I was going to do. At, because when I graduated, I was like, I'm never going into advertising. It's the devil. You know, like, <laughs> that's the thing that you learn in this program. It's like, you have to be a journalist and you have to be, and, and advertising is, you know, the antithesis of what you should be doing. But, um, you know, I, I, I didn't follow that path. I didn't go into journalism and, and I was really lost. I mean, I love, you know, the people I worked with at shoppers and they, obviously they treated me very well. I mean, I'd been there for gosh, almost 10 years, but I, I went back there. You said something really funny about, how in in your program at UWO, they taught you to be, uh, I mean, to dislike advertising, to be skeptical yeah. of it. I studied communications at Brock University, and it was the exact same thing as well. Now that you're on the other side in advertising, don't you just want to go back to your professors and be like, we made this ad and that person's wearing, I don't know, a blue dress because that's all they had in wardrobe. It has no other visual resonance whatsoever. No, exactly. We shot on this day because it was cheaper. You know what the thing that we held as our like be all end all was Adbusters. Do you remember that magazine? Yes, I do remember Adbusters. Oh God, that's a name I have not heard in a while. Yeah, that was the thing. And so that's like, I held that as my, you know, the, the, the thing that I held up very high. And so, you know, Adbusters, that's why ads were bad because, you know, the advertising industry, well, I mean, look at us now, right? You know, we're not the big bad advertising industry, but no, we want to say to our, our our professors that this industry isn't as deep as you thought it was. There aren't all these hidden meanings. It's sometimes it's no. just it is what it is. What you're looking at. Yeah, I remember like looking at you know textbooks where they're like, look, there's a there's a shape that makes a and points towards that and. You know, and you know what? We don't think about that, honestly. We just yeah. want to get the ad out the door. <laughs> and we want it out the door. We want it finished on time. We want everyone happy and we want it trafficked in a timely fashion. Oh, I wish that was so easy. It sounds so easy when you say it. <laughs> yeah, no, I, no, it's not. <laughs> but you did find yourself after in the media industry. How did you land at Zenith Optimedia? And what was your first role there? Uh, well, I loved my time at Zenith, first of all. Um, and I will say the way I, I ended up there was very haphazardly. Um, my very good friend and college roommate or university roommate, Michelle's fiance at the time, now her husband, is Danny Shankman. I don't know. Many of you probably know him. And if you don't know him, if you saw his picture, you'd remember him. He's the really tall six foot eight guy. Um, he, he was at Zenith already. And he was like, you got to come here. Come, come talk to my director. There's a role. It's a junior entry level role. You'll be great for it. And I was like, oh, okay, sure. You know, um, I'm 26 now and have no direction in my life. So my parents are kind of like, uh, time to get out of the house, you know, like, great. You're, you're doing a retail job, but you got to go. So I, I went and did this interview uh, with his director and, and she was like, I love you. Come work for us. And I was like, sure. I had no idea. Like when I say no idea, I mean, when I, when I started my job, I didn't even know what I was doing. So I was traffic coordinator, actually. And, and what that entails is taking the digital assets, like, you know, the big boxes and the skyscrapers and taking those assets and making traffic sheets and giving them to the publishers and, and, you know, taking our client assets, giving them to the publishers. And that was my job. I had no idea what a big box was. My first day, <laughs> I was like, so what do I, what is this? And, and they had to explain everything to me. I really had no idea. But they took a chance on me because, you know, they were like, oh, you seem like, you know, you know, you seem like a good person. And, 
you, you can, you, you're not like a total dud and you could talk to people. We'll just here. And so they took a chance on me and I, I loved it. I mean, I, no one had ever been in that role before. And so there was no rules. There was no process. It was the wild west. And, and, and I got to make it the way I wanted it. And, and that's kind of how I made a lot of, that's how my career has really shaped up, right? Is um, just starting new roles and, and, and finding my way that way. You had a series of promotions, though, during your time at Zenith. From uh, coordinator, you moved into account executive. What was the difference between that role and the previous one? Well, coordinator was very much like a traffic role um, and, and very technical, even though I had no idea, you know, when I started. Uh, the account executive role became more client facing and more of a planner role. And so very quickly, they started putting me in front of clients and getting me to present because, you know, if you can't tell, I'm loud and I'm, you know, quite animated. And so um, I always did well in front of clients. I always do. I always love presenting. And so I did a lot of that in that role and I loved it. And it was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, I got to go and talk to like some of the pretty, some of the coolest brands on earth and got to talk to them about their digital advertising when like, I won't say it was in the nascent stage, but like people were just starting to do digital en masse. And so, you know, I was always looked at as the the cool person in the room because she knows how to talk about digital. From there, you became the director of digital activation. Tell us a little bit more about the new responsibilities you inherited there. And is it safe to say that the biggest shift from you was moving from a player to a coaching role? Yeah, definitely. So I went from, we'll say, kind of an AE role to a director role because I was filling that void again, right? So we we didn't have a, a digital buying team. At the time, the planners were just buying digital off the side of their desk. Could you imagine? Digital, you know, was less than 10% of any media buy. And and now digital is probably the majority of most media buys. And so it's just funny because back then it was like, okay, we need to start thinking about how, how to set up a process and make a bit more of a, a, a cohesive team to put this all together. And so I was given the mandate of build a team to buy digital. And this was before programmatic, right? So everything was still... Do you remember when we signed things by IO and then we had to fax it back? I, I remember faxing you things, Victor. Yep, I remember that very much. Okay, <laughs> I'm going to tell you something right now. You were, when I moved from television, doing four years of TV coordinating and TV sales into digital, you were, I think you were my first client. You were working on the Toronto Zoo. And I was, oh, and I was at Astral Digital selling family.ca. I love the Toronto Zoo. They, were, they, they still have such a special place in my heart. I love that place. And they were such a, they're a great client and they were a pro bono client too, but I would do anything for them. I really did. <laughs> I, I really, I remember us working together, Victor. And that was so long ago. Let's not tell people how long ago that was. <laughs> that was last week, right? <laughs> not that long ago, yeah, but I do remember yeah. we had to fax stuff back to each other. Yeah. That was back in the day. And then I guess on my end, we finally got a scanner built into the printer. <laughs> so I was able to do that properly. <laughs> And now I'm still, I'm, oh, now I'm still trying to source DocuSign. Oh gosh, that's too funny. I remember we had an intern once who, his only role was to fax the signed contracts. And we found out after he left, he didn't correctly fax anything. And none of the contracts <laughs> ever made it to where they were supposed to go. Oh God, poor guy's just sitting there running stuff through a machine and it's going into yeah. the endless void of wherever. Of beeps, yep. <laughs> so, wouldn't it wouldn't it be yeah. awesome if it ended up at one other specific fax machine, like halfway around the world, and this person's like, "What is Zenith, and why do I keep getting these things?" <laughs> totally. I I only hope that that's where they were going, and not you know, God, God knows where. Um, but yeah, it was a lot of uh, there was a lot of faxing involved in those early days. Um, but you know, we got through it. By the time I was done there, I think we were, we had moved to, you scan it and then it emails it to you. And then you had a scanned copy of it, but there was still scanning. There was still scanning involved, but your time at Zenith towards the tail end of your tenure there, you were involved with uh, opening their first agency trading desk, which 
must have been, I mean, that must have been something really, really great to work on. Might have even been a hard sell internally because trying to convince people about, you know, buying media this way, you're buying it out on an open exchange. You're not going to know the sites you're running on all the time, but you're going to get it for, you're going to get it for significantly less and then convincing clients to kind of buy into that. Talk us a little bit about what it was like getting a trading desk set up for the very first time. Cause you talked to us about how digital was run when you first landed there and it was kind of bundled with like traditional media. This is kind of arguably one of the first times where the agency is kind of breaking away and saying, no, this is a dedicated digital product and service we offer. It's not tied to any legacy media. Yeah. Yeah. No, it was. Um, so it was the time when everyone started talking about, you know, let's, let's start a trade desk in our age. All the agencies were kind of doing it, dipping their toes, bringing in the guys from the U S or the people from the U S to, to run it. And, and I had a conversation with my then boss, one of my mentors and one of the best people I've ever worked with, Veronica Holmes. Um, and I said to her, and we talked about the fact that it was, all of these solutions were non-transparent and we needed something that was transparent. Because if we really were servicing our clients the way that you know clients wanted to be serviced, I don't think that they want this non-transparent model. And so um, I... I embarked on this, and this is right at the time I was leaving too. So I never saw it through to saw it through to fruition. But we were trying to set up uh, a non or a transparent trade desk at an agency when everyone else was not doing that. And I think that was a brave move. And I think it's you know what a lot of clients are asking for now if they're not already taking it in house because they need that transparency. So, you know, I really, I thought it was a, it was a very different model. And I think it was building it from scratch versus bringing up, um, you know, something that was canned from the U.S. and just, you know, lifting and shifting it. And so it was a really different model. And, and I was proud of it, even though, you know, I never saw it to the fruition. Tell us what brought you to Mediacom and the digital account director role that you started in. Did you find the role or did the role find you? I've never found a role on my own um, in my entire career. I've always had someone pull me in. And so this time it was actually a headhunter um, or, or an HR person from Mediacom. And they were, they came and they said, listen, our account director is going on maternity leave, but we want you to come and work with us full time. We don't want you to come on contract because this is P&G. They're the biggest client out there. And so we need you know, someone who knows what they're doing and we need someone who's committed to it. And, and so, you know, I made that really difficult decision um, to leave, even though, you know, I was in the middle of building this thing and, and, you know, I, I had this history of like, I grew up at Zenith and I was surrounded by really inspirational people, um, women, you know, Sunny Boot and, and Veronica Holmes. Sunny is, one of the legends of the industry and I got to work with her, but I, I also felt like I needed to go and spread my wings. And it's really hard not to say, it's really hard to say no to P and G to the biggest advertiser, to, to the exposure it gives you. And the fact that you, know, you get to work with so many different people, it was such a draw. And, and I, and I loved it. I love the clients. I, whenever I see them still, you know, it's still big hugs, everyone. And, How's it going? My good friends work on that account now. Um, and so, you know, it, it is, P&G was the draw. You know, that was the, it's the big client that everyone wants to work on. And it's not just the fact that they are the biggest client, but when you are probably the biggest advertiser in the world, vendors and uh, new tech companies and just opportunities in general, they come to you. People are beating on your door. So there is no shortage of opportunities uh, to be educated. Yeah. And there's no, there were, you know, we, I got to see alphas and betas as the, you know, as the director at Zenith, but the amount of things that you got exposure to, um, being able to also see globally, like that was one of the things that P&G was really good at is having that global view. And they're still very good at that, right? You know, they're good at bringing things into markets that make sense and, and introducing new and, you know, th their leaders are leaders of the industry, right? Like Mark Pritchard, everybody knows his name. If you don't know Mark Pritchard, then, you know, you're not in advertising. Right? I know Mark Pritchard. Yep. Not personally, exactly. but yeah, I've heard no. the name. Definitely. Okay. I don't know him personally either, but 
I definitely know the things he's done and, and that, and the things he's talking about matter and they still matter to, you know, Scotiabank now are, you know, we, we go to the ANA conferences and we hear him talk and our CMO talks to him. And, and it's really important that what they're saying we're, we're listening to because they do have a huge hold on the marketing industry and the advertising industry. At Zenith, you've managed a portfolio of many different clients, but at Mediacom, P&G's got many different brands under one client umbrella. How did that differ, managing clients, uh, managing the different brands at P&G versus managing the many different clients you had at, say, Zenith? You know, the thing, the only difference was that it was one client still. I only had one kind of main client that I worked with because it was the media side. And then there were brand managers. But we really ha- we had a media contact, whereas when I was um, at Zenith, there were many different clients um, because there were so many different people and so many different uh, clients to cater to. So it was actually a little bit easier because I knew what that person wanted. Um, and so I didn't have to kind of cater to different people. But on, you know, when you're when you're managing a whole bunch of clients, you've got to cater to different kinds of people and, you know, what their needs are versus um, having that one person that you answer to. And I got to imagine that P&G is a well-oiled machine. Oh, like gosh. there are a lot of like policies and procedures and steps you have to follow when working with them or even executing a campaign versus maybe some of the, uh, some of the other clients you had at Zenith who were like, okay, guy, we're turning to you for direction. Was that the yeah. case? There were binders full of process when I showed up. So yes. Um, but one of my, I'm going to call it a strength, is that I, I don't really care as much about that kind of stuff. Like, I just want to, and I say this a lot right now, I'm a bit of a bull in the china shop where I'm like, I need to get this done. So we're going to do whatever we need to do, but we're going to get here and we're probably going to get here real fast and I'm going to break a lot of stuff. And, and so, you know, I probably broke some of that process, but it was in the spirit of, you know, getting something done. And so, um, yeah, there was a lot of process and a lot of things were mapped up, mapped out, but they also had flexibility, you know, and that's what I appreciated. Like I, I was allowed to break things and it was okay. One thing that I've learned about working with P&G uh, throughout the years in a number of different capacities is that they've always got a budget to spend. So if you've got a proactive idea, they're one of the few clients worth taking it to because they might actually buy it if it works for them. Whereas other clients will be like, oh, this looks nice. Maybe next year we're spent for the year. Yeah. It's true. They have test budgets and they set money aside. And, you know, their their whole ethos is that they're, they're a collection of brands, right? And so really they their work is to make those brands bigger. And so if anything, P&G, I would argue, is a marketing organization. It's a marketing-led organization. That's an interesting way of putting it. From there, you were promoted to Director of Digital Strategy at Mediacom. How did that role differ from your time at P&G? Because correct me if I'm wrong, when you received that promotion, you moved away from the P&G business and onto uh, different things at the agency. I did. I did. It was a move to working with other clients. Now, we had lost P&G by that point. We had pitched them twice. So, you know, like everyone was kind of over it. Um, it was, it was that time. And I think, you know, a lot of people remember it. There were so many pitches going on. And so I moved to the digital strategy side to both help with pitching and also to work with the clients that we already had. So there was a strategy division that was very much talking to our clients about high level, what's going on in the world and how do we strategize around those, um, you know, around what's happening in, in the industry And, you know, again, never had a digital strategist before, and I kind of just made the role my own. I ended up working a lot with um, clients like Wrigley's, Mars, um, and that, and that business, and and taking them down that journey of um, becoming more digital, looking at programmatic advertising, and, and seeing what goals that they could accomplish using programmatic. And so um, I became kind of a consultant you know, for a lot of these, a lot of these um, clients that we had. And that was a lot of fun. But I I did end up stepping away from the actual media buying and planning part of it. So um, it was more about road showing and, you know, doing decks and and pitching and that kind of thing. Part of your role at Mediacom was liaising with 
the other offices, not only Canada, but across the globe. Was there anything that you learned from your counterparts in, say, the regions or in other countries? Uh, I worked really closely with the team in New York, and um, it was the first time I really got to see, gosh, like big agency, you know, pitches and and that kind of thing. And so that really taught me a lot of, um, well, not a lot of, but more stage presence, right? And, you know, I, I had done all of the theatrical things in high school. And so it was a good use of that kind of um, going back to, go, you know, pitching and, and talking about, you know, um, what, what the agency was good at and what, what we've done before. So I learned a lot about pitching then and a lot about, um, I don't want to say sales, but sales. Wait a minute. Did you just say that you enjoyed the dark side a little bit? I I did, but I actually also uh, left Mediacom because I was tired of pitching and sales. (laughs) (laughs) I enjoyed it a little and I also don't like it so much. I, I, I escaped to the client side because I was tired of pitching. So that was one of the reasons. Well, what brought you to Scotiabank? We already know that uh, you didn't find the role that the role found you, but what was the attraction to, uh, I mean, working for one of Canada's biggest financial institutions? So again, Headhunter came looking for me. And this time it was a lot, I, I wish I remembered his name, but he was like, he reminded me of my grandfather and he was a headhunter. And he would take me for coffee and we would just chat and talk about um, marketing and digital and what it was like on the client side. And so he he was the one who convinced me to come to Scotiabank and uh, meet with their their digital director. They were just setting it up again. You know, they were setting up the practice in-house. This was before the digital factory um, which is one of the things that, you know, Scotiabank is known for. Um, and it was really, it was, again, the opportunity to trailblaze and, you know, create my own team and um, decide what digital looked like as the future of Scotiabank, um, whether it was working with uh, our, our media agency or um, advising on what the website would look like or, um, digital campaigns and how it was all things that I'd been like, I'd really love to work on that. If I was on the client side, I really had never thought that I was going to go client side though. So it, it took a lot of convincing. It took grandpa a lot of convincing <laughs> to like, we, we had coffee several times for him to convince me to, to, to meet with the folks at Scotiabank and, and start that transition process and, and make that move because Gosh, I wanted to be, and you know, I mentioned it before, I wanted to be Sunny Boots. I wanted to be the president of a media agency, and, and I wanted to wear big, jangly uh, um, bracelets and, and, and go walk into a room and say something brilliant and then walk out and be like, everybody be like, wow, that's what I wanted. And so um, that wasn't, that's not the destiny on the client side, but uh you know, I really, I, I, I took a long time to get to the client side and get myself to psych myself up to going to client side. In retrospect, though, you were, you were ahead of the curve because I know Scotiabank was one of the first ones to really start taking their media in-house, but you could talk about a number of other clients, or I shouldn't say clients, brands or uh, advertisers in Canada and even globally who are starting to do that as well or, or have already done that. So you're well ahead. Yeah. Yeah, it's true. A lot of a lot of my friends on the media side have gone client side, um, and it's just the way the world is moving, right? So a lot of digital is is going in house. Now, I'm gonna say that things that are happening could change that. <laughs> it could it could make the in house team obsolete, um, especially on the digital side. If you know if if some of the the players out there decide to eliminate the cookies that could pose a huge problem, but we'll see. Anyways, that's, that's a whole other, that's a whole other podcast, Victor. Okay. Talking about that stuff. A lot of people listening to this will know Scotiabank as a Canadian company, but I don't think many people are aware just what kind of international presence uh, the company has, especially in the Caribbean and Latin America. Do you get to touch on some of those campaigns, get to learn from your peers that work in warmer, sunnier climates with far less snow? And if so, like, are there any, is there any real difference between, say, advertising 
uh, say a consumer bank in pick a Caribbean country. I was getting the Cayman Islands versus say Canada. Well, banking in the Cayman Islands is a whole other thing, right? Actually, you know what? I probably picked the wrong country. That's like Switzerland South. Exactly. Uh, Let's say Trinidad and Tobago, because we've got a big presence there. But yeah, you know, what's really awesome is that Scotiabank has almost as long of a history in the Caribbean region specifically as it does in Nova Scotia. And you want to know why? That's interesting. Yeah, no, why? Because we were we were helping with the, we'll call it the rum trade during times when, uh, you know, they were not necessarily supposed to be trading rum. So <laughs> Bank has been in the Caribbean. Well, that's where you get Screech from, right? So in, in Eastern Canada, Screech is a big thing. And that's because it's basically rum and it came from the Caribbean. So wait, there's, there's a tie to the Caribbean. So wait, there's an. I didn't even know this. I'm learning something right here. There is like an Atlantic Canada version of rum called Screech. Screech. It's called Screech. I've never tried it, but this is what I'm told. Our history is our history in the Caribbean uh, is tied to the rum trade, and it's because um, Eastern Eastern Canada has a history of of Screech. Maybe one day we should go try some Screech. We should have a you know, when we can actually see each other in real life, we, we should go and try some screech somewhere. I'm up for that. Although, <laughs> can, we, can we just call it Canadian rum? It's just, I know, hearing yeah. the name screech, yeah, we're going to do shots of screech. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. it, it sounds like some sort of crazy designer drug cooked up in someone's basement. Uh, or or Saved by the Bell character. That's your, yes. Dustin Diamond, rest also. in peace. I know. Uh, yeah, that was my, uh, I, that also dates me, ages me as well. So. Oh, um, I, yeah. I watched all of it. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Yeah, exactly. So, but that that's Scotiabank has a very rich history in in uh, the Caribbean and and Latin America, and so especially in the Caribbean, we have such high brand recognition there. It's really it's really awesome. People tell me from the Caribbean, they're like, "Oh, we didn't even know that it was a Canadian bank because you guys have been here for so long," and it's because. You know, we've been trading with um, with the region for so long, but I really, I, I really love that we are a global organization. Scotia is, um, and and we have that presence in so many of Latin American countries, and we bring a very Canadian approach to that, which I think is unique. You know, having having worked with P and G, the largest, you know, one of the largest global advertisers, it was very much a um, things came from the center and you kind of adapted or you did whatever. The the philosophy that we have, and this is thanks to our, our CMO, she's global as well. She's an awesome woman. Um, her philosophy very much is, you know, we let the, the countries do as they need to and see fit because only they know the, their countries. They know their countries better than we do, right? So trying to force fit something from the center, from Canada, to make it, you know, to and make these countries do the same thing to lift and shift doesn't make sense. And so it's very much a collaborative and consultative approach. And we work very closely with them. And I've, you know, I've had the privilege of going there. I've been to Colombia, um, you know, Mexico, uh, Costa Rica, all these places on business travel, which is awesome and terrible all at the same time. Um, but, you know, being able to go and see these these countries and the culture, you learn really quickly that they're not Canadian. And so you can't treat them the same way. And so, you know, our, our marketing philosophy is very much one of, listen, the brand is going to look the same wherever you go, right? Like the, the Scotiabank, the red, the flying S, you know, the word mark, those things are, are going to be the same. That's the same experience you get everywhere. But the way that the brand is treated is is very much up to the local teams. And I think that makes a lot of sense. I've interviewed many guests on the Media People podcast, and a lot of the people I've interviewed have had many jobs at many places. And a lot of their promotions have kind of come up because, I mean, they were headhunted or they found a new opportunity at another company. And that's where they made sort of the forward or upward, upward move in their career. You have worked at very few places, but at every place you've worked at, you have managed at least one promotion. So if anyone is listening to this and they want to find a way to get out of, say, the cubicle into the corner office, or I guess the small cubicle into the bigger cubicle, because we're all going to be hoteling when we get back. I mean, what advice would you impart to people? 
when I was young, my parents always told me to stick with a job and, and not bounce around. And I guess that's kind of stuck with me. I find a hole and I fill it. That's the thing. I tell this to students when I go and talk at schools, I have this one graphic where it's a picture of, or it's like a, it's an illustration of someone digging a hole and, or filling the hole, I should say. And so what I've done in pretty much my entire career has found that thing that nobody else is doing, but someone's got to do it and really gotten very passionate about it because I care a lot and filled that void. And so, you know, back to when I started at Zenith, no one, no one was a traffic coordinator before that on the digital side. They had traffickers. They were all television traffickers. They had no idea. They also had no idea what a big box was. So it was really, that was how I got my in was finding something that no one else was doing and then doing it. It's how I went from an account executive to a director uh, at Zenith because I, no one, no one was building a digital buying team. There was no digital buying team. So I hired probably like nine people and, and I still am very close with them. Like I still see the team, a lot of people on the team often, as often as we can, you know, we catch up on, on zoom or, you know, whatever. Um, and, and we've even had weddings. There's been a couple that was married <laughs> because of this team. So, you know, I think you, you've got to just find that hole, find that niche and fill it. I, I'm still doing that here at Scotiabank. Um, I, there was nobody really managing, you know, merchandising strategy. And there was a person kind of doing it and she was seconded to it. But, you know, they were like, our, our, our executives were like, we need someone who's, this is their full-time job. They need a director and we need to. And so they kind of looked around, they're like, Gai, she's got her hand up. Let's give it to her. And so that, that's kind of how it was. That's how I've moved around in my career and, and gotten, um, gotten into new roles. I collect things. I, my team right now is a bit, you know, that there, there are disparate functions, but they all make sense together because I'm bringing them together and we're filling that, that need to have, you know, account representation to have, um, you know, media people. And so, you know, it, it's been fun because I get to create a lot from scratch. You're also a regular on the lecture circuit. Who are you typically speaking to and, and what do your talks involve? I usually talk to undergrads. They're usually college. Um, I'm on, on the board of uh, the board of directors for um, the professional um, advertising um, council. Oh, I butchered that, but they'll, they'll know who I'm talking about at Sheridan College. Um, and they're a wonderful group. Uh, and so I talk to their students a lot. I usually give them a talk about how to get into the industry and, you know, the things that they should be. So I talk about filling the holes uh, and, and what they need to know and, and talk about to sound really smart when they go to interviews. But actually this past uh, week, I spoke to a Sheridan uh, post-grad class and I had a fireside chat with my super inspiring, awesome colleague, Lisa Frickle who is our sponsorship director and she heads up our, our hockey sponsorship. So like if you see the name on the side of that big arena, downtown Toronto, um, <laughs> she had her hands in that one. She's such an inspiration and such a interesting person because she's really fought her way up in a very male dominated industry. And she is very highly regarded, but um, so I had an uh, amazing chat with her and that's the thing I love doing is, is talking to students, but also, um, you know, sharing. And so I was able to share with her, um, you know, her experiences and also my experiences. And, and that's the thing I find the students really want. They just want to know that you can get in that, you know, they can find a career that they love and do things that they love, but they also want to hear about the things that are like, okay, so you're going to have to do this crappy thing for a little while, like BCRs and invoices and stuff. And, uh, and then, but you're also going to do really awesome things like putting your brand on an arena or sponsoring, um, you know, hockey, or, you know, for me doing some pretty awesome campaigns and working on some pretty big deals for the bank. So 
um, you know, that's what they want to hear. And that's what the, that's what the students now, they want to know that they, they can make it and they can get there, but also that you started somewhere too. Send them this podcast then after we're done. So if they're just like, guy, we want to learn more about you. Just be like forward button, find this on Apple yeah. podcasts. And oh, I got to say, it. you, you bring up something really interesting. Scotiabank arena, the naming rights, man, you guys picked the perfect time. Like air Canada had the naming rights for how many years? And there was no Stanley cup or NBA championship. And then you guys come in and I correct me if I'm wrong. The first year it was called Scotiabank arena was when the Raptors won, right? Like the 2018 yeah. to 2019 season. Yeah, that's right. And that was amazing. Like the earned media on that one was through the roof. So uh, it did really well for for Tangerine. Um, And I'm sure they're pretty happy about it. And there's a little bit of devil in the detail with that as well. Someone pointed this out to me that the day it was renamed from Air Canada Centre to Scotiabank Arena, he happened to notice that one of his older Instagram posts where he tagged himself at being the Air Canada Centre flipped to Scotiabank arena that day. Like it was like, I was like, Oh my God, they've thought of everything. Like they, they write down to the social posts they own as well. I mean, good on you. I think it's wonderful that you can do that. Yeah. I mean, it took us a really long time to, and listen, I wasn't really part of that. That was, I'm going to give that credit to Lisa and, and our sponsorship teams and, and our agencies that they worked with, but you know, it took them, they, they did a lot of exercises to get the brand where it was supposed to to make sure that people accepted it, right? Because there was a lot of fear. Like everyone was calling it the ACC. Nobody calls it the ACC anymore. I, I honestly don't hear people call it the ACC. Like everyone calls it the Scotiabank Arena. So, you know, there was a lot of work done there to get that, um, you know, in line. And 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 it worked, I think. <laughs> I, mean, the, I mean, stadium sponsorship does work. When was the last time uh, you found yourself referring to it as the Skydome? Okay, that's a bad one to ask me because I do <laughs> okay. always refer to it as the Sky Dome. I'm terrible. I used to li- like I used to live across the street from there, and I remember going there as a kid. So this is the thing, right? The ACC hadn't been a- around as long as the Sky Dome. I remember going to the Sky Dome as a kid, and so I will always call it the Sky Dome. I'm sorry, Rogers, um, but I will always call it the Sky Dome because I remember going there as a kid, and I remember sitting up in the rafters and watching the dome open and just, you know, the awe that, you know, seeing this huge monstrous thing happen. Um, so I, that was not the greatest example for me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I'm trying to think of another one, but I can't because Maple Leaf yeah. Gardens was just Maple Leaf Gardens always. No one had the naming rights to that. No, no, no. That's a, it's a, you know what? Uh, naming rights are, you know, I think fairly recent, right? I believe so. Yeah. Guy, I'm really enjoying our chat. Time to move on to some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? I am. So the very first one, the campaign you are most proud of. So not a campaign. It is actually a project I'm working on right now. It's our framework for inclusion in marketing for diversity and inclusion. And it really feels like the most meaningful thing I'm doing in my career. It means so much to me personally. And, um, it, it just it it's going to make a difference in the work that we're doing. So not a campaign, but every campaign from now on. You don't have a favorite movie, but you have a favorite TV show. What is it? I do. And it's actually um, my university professor made us watch this show and I fell in love with it. It is The West Wing. Um, and I, I probably watch it once every couple of years, like from season one to season seven, uh, right through. I mean, the way it humanizes politicians from both sides yeah. of the American aisle, it almost seems like science fiction now. Right? <laughs> no, but I feel like maybe President Bartlett is President Biden now. Like, there's a little glimmer of hope there versus not before. <laughs> See, I really liked, I think it was the final season when it was an election year and President Bartlett was out. Because I watched the show sporadically. My brother's a big politico, so I kind of mm. caught it from him a bit. And I really enjoyed the last season right down to, do you remember the live? This is a real media case study for people like you and me. Do you remember, of course you do, what am I saying? The uh, debate episode that they filmed live yeah. and it had one sponsor, I think, in the middle. It was American Express. Not that I'm saying I'm a conservative or anything, but I don't know. Alan Alda won me over. I would have voted for him. I, yes, Alan Alda was the, and, and I did not like MASH because my dad watched it all the time and <laughs> then I could never watch TV. So um, I didn't like MASH, but I loved him on Westwood. Every, every conservative on the show, I loved, even if it was because I loved to hate them. You don't get that. That's not the real politics. That's the problem. 
you know, if they were like that, it would be a lot harder for me. They do a good job of humanizing them and presenting their point of view. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Your favorite video game? Well, I'm playing right now. I've been I've been playing Animal Crossing as everybody does during the pandemic. So that is my probably I played it pretty much every single day for an entire year. So that's pretty amazing because I usually only play games for like, you know, I play them and then I stop playing them. My partner, he plays video games over and over again. I can't. Um, But I'm also that being said, I am also replaying Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. So it's probably the only video game I've really replayed. Um, But yeah, so those are my two favorite games right now. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, who would you want to play you? That is a very tough one because there's not a lot of representation of female, of Asian women in in Hollywood, right? So um, I had to think about this one. I think I would say Aquafina. Um, she's hilarious and loud um, and and just says what comes to her mind. So I'm like, that that's me. I could do that. She could she could be me. If Hollywood were to make a movie based on your life story, what would you call it? Oh, gosh, I have no idea. I, I am thinking and I have no idea. Um, the only word that comes to mind is chaos. And that's probably <laughs> not the right. In capitals with an exclamation mark. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Underline. Italicized. Just chaos. And I it just it's because everything is chaotic until it's not. And everything kind of is all over the place until it's not but things also fall into place so i don't know what the aftermath of chaos is but it could be chaos and order (laughs) possibly (laughs) i'm not a copywriter i'm not a copywriter (laughs) order will be the sequel yeah (laughs) i like that there we go your favorite book oh classic great gatsby and i and i i don't read very often now I listen to books on tape I found that I'm a audio learner and you know also the reason why I love podcasts um because I'm an audio learner and so uh, I listen to the great Gatsby again I don't replay video games but I definitely reread books and so the great Gatsby is that one your favorite song okay um how about this I have I have okay I have other people struggle with this one as well what what do you believe is the most played song on, say, your Spotify or Apple Music playlist right now? Oh, that's awesome. Okay, I, that I can answer. It's probably Chris Stapleton's Traveler. Um, I never used to listen to country music, and I never, uh, well, I just never listened to country music until I met my partner, and he's a huge country music guy, um, and he loves music, and if, and I was stressing over this because if I said the wrong thing, he would be like, why did you choose that song? So. Um, but Chris Stapleton's Traveler is probably the most played song on my on my Spotify list. If you could go back in time and give your younger self advice, what would you say? The drama will pass. The drama always passes. My signature closing question. If you weren't in media, what would you be doing and why? I'd probably be a lawyer. Um, I wanted to be a lawyer when I was a kid. And my aunt is actually a lawyer. And I was like, I'm going to be like my aunt. She's a lawyer. Um, so I, I almost wrote my LSAT, <laughs> uh, but I didn't quite make it. And so I probably would be a lawyer. I like to argue with people. Guy, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Victor. That's it for today's show. For more episodes, you can go to mediapeople.ca or subscribe wherever you get podcasts. And don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Vic Genova.